All right, we're going to get started. It's good to see you guys here tonight. If you want to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, that's where we're going to be uh, mostly grounded this evening. And we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 25, considering the priority of prayer when it comes to being able to endure trials in our lives. Uh, So Luke 8, 22 through 25. Uh, But before we get started, let's just ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can come before you this evening and find uh, in your presence a throne of grace that gives us grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Father, we thank you that by the blood of Jesus Christ we can lay our hand upon this throne and ask of you for the help that we need uh, each and every moment of the day. And Father, as we come to this moment, as we approach your word, we recognize that apart from you, we can understand nothing in this book. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would accompany the teaching of your word, that you would illuminate uh, this truth to our minds and to our hearts. Father, I pray that you would plant it deep within us, that your word would run uh, swiftly, that it would have free course in our lives so that we would be changed as you speak to us, um, that we would be changed more into your image um, for your honor and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just to remind you, we are going through a study that's entitled Principles on Prayer from uh, the Life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And there are six sections to this study tonight. We're going to start section number four, which is principles on prayer from the mentoring of Jesus. You see, even though Jesus did preach many messages in public to the crowds in Israel, um, he spent much more time, much more time personally mentoring his 12 chosen apostles uh, in private. It is during these occasions that Jesus gave Uh, most of his instructions about prayer, and so a large portion of our study on principles of prayer will be taking place during these private moments. The first private moment in which Jesus begins to teach his disciples about the importance of prayer, which we'll look at this evening, is in Luke 8, 22 through 25. In this moment, Jesus uses a very dramatic physical event to teach his disciples a very critical spiritual event truth about prayer. Basically, Jesus throws his disciples into a near-death experience so that they would learn about the priority of prayer, especially in how it relates to enduring trials. If we are to endure trials that come to us in this life rightly for the glory of God, we must make prayer a priority in our lives. So let's begin in Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 22. Luke records for us, Luke records to us in verse 22, One day he, that is Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. So when I picture this, I think of Jesus like those businessmen when you're going to the real seats in the airplane, and you pass all the first class, and you already see these businessmen or businesswomen already uh, totally laid out asleep on the airplane before the tires ever leave the runway, right? Uh, Jesus was completely, physically exhausted. Um, I know the weariness that can come from preaching 
even just one time a day or two times a day, but Jesus would preach all day, day after day after day after day, Um, which is encouraging to know because as I fight weariness in my own life, I remember that I have a high priest who's been touched in every way and understands exactly what that weariness is like, And, and yet he was able to continue serving and honoring and glorifying God throughout that weariness and he can help me do that as well and so all the while even though Jesus was engaged in this very grueling form of ministry the crowds would continually be pushing Jesus for more and more Uh, in fact Mark 436 tells us about this account that even here other boats were with him Jesus got into a boat and said let's go across to the other side to get away from the crowds and the crowds say great idea and they all jump in boats and go with him and so that's what's happening here um a small fleet of boats have taken across the par- uh, have taken off across the lake and up to this point nothing in this account is strange uh, it's a pretty ordinary day in Jesus's life that's why Luke starts this account by simply saying one day Jesus and his disciples would cross the lake regularly you see this in the studies of the Gospels. And so far, it's just another one of those days, another simple crossing across the lake. But, like the trials that often come into our lives, all that everyday feel was about to change very, very quickly. Because we see at the end of our part of verse 23, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Verse 24, how great was that danger? They went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. We're perishing. So as this little uh, fleet of boats are crossing the lake, suddenly a windstorm swept down from the mountain regions and comes swirling across the lake uh, there in the Sea of Galilee. That word windstorm is a very descriptive word in the Greek. And it's talking about a tempest, a swirling, really, hurricane of wind and rain. Uh, The Sea of Galilee is well known for these types of storms, particularly in the winter when sudden, violent, torrential uh, storms produce hurricane-force winds. In fact, they've recorded the size of waves created by those winds to be in excess of 10 feet sometimes on the Sea of Galilee. This is one of those storms only Luke kind of indicates that it was worse than normal. Well, worse than the worst normal storms uh, because the word for windstorm includes not only impressions of a hurricane but also of an earthquake, uh, of boiling unrest that is swirling up from below. So this is like the perfect storm type material. This is what you make a movie off of, right? Uh, Matthew 8 tells us that the waves were coming up so high they were covering the boat. Mark 4 says they were crashing down upon the boat, filling it with water. So what's being described here in this passage is uh, just a tumultuous picture of really nature's unbridled wrath um, to such an extent that these disciples who, think about it, as fishermen had lived and worked on this lake for decades were facing something the likes of which they had never seen before in their entire life. It was so overwhelming that these experienced fishermen knew exactly not what was about to happen. They knew exactly what was already happening. As they tell Jesus here, it's not we're about to perish, it is Jesus 
we are dying. We're dying right now. As the end of verse 24 says, they were in the process of dying. So the, I, the reason why I want to make the point is I don't want you to picture in your head tonight that cute, those cute Renaissance paintings, right, that have been given, you know, where one disciple is holding the rope heroically in the boat and another one's up in the front of the boat like Washington crossing the Delaware and, um, you know, and then you have the other disciple that's politely, politely tapping Jesus on the shoulder you know, saying, you know, I just want to let you know if you haven't noticed yet that we're in the middle of a storm. That's not what's being described here at all. Um, that's a sanitized picture. This is not the picture that Scripture gives. These disciples are perishing. So imagine that same disciple holding on to that rope, except he's not looking heroic. I want you to imagine him being whipped around by the winds like a rag doll. Uh, Picture that disciple not standing at the front of the boat heroically like Washington crossing the Delaware. I want you to picture that man clinging to the mast of the boat like a drowned rat trying to get his head above the water before he goes down again, right? Instead of picturing that, that disciple who's politely tapping Jesus on the shoulder saying, by the way, did you know we're about to die? I want you to picture some disciple grabbing him by the collar and saying, wake up, don't you see what's happening? This is what is pictured in Scripture. This is an existential crisis going on for these disciples. They were in the process of dying. In the span of an hour, those disciples had gone from experiencing just another day to suddenly fighting for their very lives. Absolute chaos. And in the midst of that furious chaos, as all hope is lost... As they're going under, if you want to picture, for the third time, right? As they're looking around for absolutely anything that will save them. Suddenly they look to the back of the boat and there's Jesus still asleep on his cushion. See, the point of this passage is, uh, and that the story is showing us, is that in the midst of this chaos, Jesus is not the first thing that the disciples turn to. He's the last. They turn to him only when they wake him up at the point of, we are dying. When all of their fishing and sailing skills had failed, when they had literally nowhere else to turn, then they grab hold of Jesus. Uh, and as they're going down, they finally turn to him. And I can imagine Jesus awakening to the chaos of those sights and sounds. Everything's a frothing tumult. The water is everywhere, and the disciples are shaking him. Um, putting all the gospel accounts together, you really get the picture of mayhem because so many people are saying so many things, right? So these are all of the voices that are recorded in the gospels. You hear, Lord, help us, save us, we're dying. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Master, master, we're perishing. You have like this picture going on in your mind, absolute desperation as they are brought to the end of their perceived self-sufficiency. They finally cry out to the Lord. And Jesus hears. The end of verse 24 says, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Now that would have been shocking. Matthew indicates that that happened immediately, uh, like the flipping of a light switch, from instant chaos to instant calm. Storms gone, waves gone, wind gone, in a moment, in an instant. If you are missing the point, that doesn't just happen. I grew up in Michigan, not too far from Lake Michigan, when storms would come across Lake Michigan. Even when the storm would end, it would take hours for the waves to die down. That's not what happens here. It goes from complete pandemonium to complete peace in an instant at the words of Christ. And then 
verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? I want you to consider the disciples' question first. They ask, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? As Jews, they knew the answer to that question. Who then is this? Psalms 89 verse 8 says this, O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the seas. When its waves rise, you still them. Only God can calm the sea. And then Jesus emerges from the back of the boat, stands up in front, says a word, and instantly stills the seas. Who then is this? The answer is clear. This is God. This is God. Who alone stills the roarings of the sea, the roarings of their waves, as Psalm 65 verse 7 says. I can't help but think when I study this passage of uh, Psalms 107, 23 through 29, where the psalmist records this. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his mighty works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. That's exactly what the disciples saw on that boat. At a fulfillment of Psalms 107. And Luke tells us that they were afraid now, but they weren't afraid of the storm like they had been before. Now they were afraid of the person who was sitting in the boat with them. It's because of this realization that Jesus asks them his question here at the beginning of verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? I was here right along. This is a very critical question that Jesus asks. Jesus, by the way, and this is how I want to conclude this message, Jesus only speaks three times in this account. And each one of those times, he teaches us something very, very important about himself. So I want to conclude with this. First, Jesus, I want you to see from this account that Jesus sends our storms. Jesus is the one who sends our storms. The first time Jesus speaks is in verse 22 when he says, let us go to the other side of the lake. Think of that. Jesus knew that that storm would happen. Jesus knew that those disciples would be thrown into a crisis that would nearly take their life, that would throw them into absolute terror and anxiety and horror and jesus says exactly that's exactly what they need to go through send them let's go across to the other side of the lake have you ever thought about that that is amazing jesus sends his disciples into a life-threatening existential crisis on purpose that must mean that jesus has some greater goal in our lives than simply our own comfort he must be desiring to create something else This prayer list that we're about to go through to this evening is an expression of numerous storms, numerous trials, numerous heartaches in the lives of many, many individuals. 
Listen, God has sent each one of those trials into these people's lives for a reason, for a purpose. And so while it is thoroughly appropriate to pray that God would, right, still the storm, right? We also need to recognize in our prayers that God is sovereign over that storm. And there is a reason why it has come. And we ought to pray that those lessons would be learned in the midst of that trial. God has those trials for a purpose. So even though trials may surprise us, just like trials surprise the disciples, they're no surprise to God. In fact, they've been sent by him for a reason, as we'll see. God planned it. And so each one of these prayer requests that we're going to be looking at tonight are reminders that God is on the move. That he is working in and on people's lives through storms that come into everyday lives. As John Newton wrote, we are sure that the Lord reigns. We are sure that the storm is guided by the hands which were nailed to the cross. So we need to remember that Jesus sends our storms. Jesus also speaks a second time in this account. And this shows us that Jesus stills our storms. The second time Jesus speaks is in verse 24 when Luke tells us he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. Think about that. Did Jesus have to speak to the winds and the waves? Did Jesus have to speak to that which cannot hear? No. Jesus could have simply willed in his own heart and mind for everything to cease and it would have ceased. So why does Jesus speak? He speaks so that those disciples would know who has the power over the storm, right? And how he brings peace to the storm by his word. That's why Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks as an expression of his will to those who can hear so that the disciples would know that he is the one who brings the calm. He is the one who commands the storms and stills them. Jesus is the one who speaks the words of almighty power, almighty power that can, storm, that can calm any storm, whether outside a man or inside a man. All he has to do is speak, peace be still, and it is so, just like God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus sends our storms. We need to remember that when we enter into trials. Jesus stills our storms. He's the one we must turn to. We must remember that. And then second, Jesus shapes our storms. I think I'd put it that way. He shapes our storms to drive us to our knees. The third time Jesus speaks in this passage is there at the beginning of verse 25 when he asks them, where is your faith? That is why Jesus sent that storm. That is why. So that they could examine where their faith was put. Was it put in Jesus or was it put in themselves or in something else? Where is your faith? Jesus asked them. It's, a, it's as if as he's saying, I was here all along. How did it come to this? Why are you at this point of perishing? Where is your faith? I wonder how long those disciples told themselves, we've got this under control, even when it was clear they didn't. Well, we're experienced fishermen. We've got a lot of life experience, right? I've got a lot to contribute to this situation. I wonder how long they were thinking that until they were finally going under for the third time and saying, oh my goodness, we are in over our heads. Why do you think, by the way, God often gives us things beyond which we can handle. He always gives us things beyond which we can handle so that we would learn we don't handle life on our own. We handle life with him. 
Jesus saying, where's your faith? I wonder how long we often tell ourselves this. How long did it take you the last time to turn to Christ when a furious squall broke on your deck? How long did you tell yourself, I've got this under control? Jesus asked his disciples, where is your faith? How long did you tell yourself you had this under control? How long did you try everything else under the sun? Why did it take you to the point of death before you woke me up and turned to me? Where is your faith? That's the question Jesus asks all of us tonight. Where is your faith? I'm right here. And I want you to consider, how long do you tell yourself when you go through trials that I've got this under control? Before you turn in prayer and faith to God. Is Christ the first place that you turn to when life gets difficult? Or is Christ often the last place you turn to when life gets difficult? In the midst of stress, anxiety, fear, or depression, where do you turn to first? Shopping for some. Hunting. Car work for others. Exercise. Entertainment. Prescription drugs, alcohol, sensuality. Do you, where do you turn when stress mounts? Anxiety seizes, fear arises, and depression strikes. Do you exhaust all other possibilities first? And then, well, I guess I could pray and read the Bible and get some counsel because nothing else is working. <laughs> How many times do we do that? When really that ought to be the first place we turn rather than the last. Turn to the Prince of Peace when the trials of life erupt upon you. Turn to the stiller of the storms through prayer and his peaceful word. Where is your faith? He's here all along. That's why Jesus sends trials and storms, to test our faith and to drive us to, to him on our knees. You see this so many other places in the gospel account. I'll just give you two examples. The first is in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17 of the feeding of the 5,000. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Jesus takes his disciples into the middle of a wilderness. He surrounds them with ten to 15,000 desperately hungry people, and then he turns to his 12 disciples and says, you give them something to eat. He puts them in a place that they cannot handle, right? And what do they do? They sit there and say, well, okay, well, what do we got? Oh, we got five loaves and two fishes. Jesus, we got five loaves and two fishes, and we can't do anything about this. And so Jesus is like, oh, man, okay, give me that. And he gives, he creates enough food to feed everyone there. The lesson is not, your five loaves and two fishes are enough to feed everybody. Your lesson is, it doesn't matter what you've got. As long as you've got Jesus, you've got enough. He's your resource. You are not your own resource. That's the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus put them in a point where they could not handle it anymore so that they realized that they had to turn to God first and foremost. Priorities. The priorities of turning to God. Uh, another example is Luke 9, 37 through 43. Later on, Jesus puts before the disciples a demon-possessed boy that they can't heal. Jesus lets them fail for a really long time until he finally comes along and casts it out. His disciples are absolutely humiliated, and they come up and ask him in private, Jesus, why could we not cast them out? And Jesus' response is, this type can only be cast out by prayer. What's the one thing you forgot? Prayer. Oh, you did a lot of other things, didn't you? What happened to the priority of prayer? 
All along the way, the disciples were turning to Christ as the last ditch effort rather than the first effort. See, that's why God often sends us beyond what we're able to handle. That's why Jesus shapes and sends us through storms so that we will learn through that storm the priority of prayer. Where is your faith? He's here right along. This is a lesson we need to learn now. Now. Prayer is not the last resort. It is the first resort in enduring trials. So, as we're about to push back after we leave tonight out into the sea of life, we need to ask ourselves this question. I'm going to face trials and difficulties for the rest of this week. Where is my faith? When I face the storms of life, am I still thinking I've got this under control? In the midst of stress and family circumstances, of anxiety and various trials, where am I turning to first? I encourage you from this passage, turn to Christ first. Put a priority on prayer. He is ready to emerge from the midst of the storm and speak peace into the most troubled circumstances and into the most troubled of spirits. Trust the God who sends the storm. Trust the God who shapes the storm. And trust the God who stills the storm for his people. This is the priority of prayer that we ought to have in enduring trials. This is the first lesson Jesus taught his disciples. How do you handle storms? By turning to Christ first of all. That's what I wanted to share with you all tonight. And so in light of that, as we consider the many trials and hardships and storms that people in our church are going through, let's do that this evening. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer.